Well, let's begin with our text this morning. Sorry again. Excuse me. Ephesians 4:29, kind of where we left off last week. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine upon you. We need to pray. I thank you, Father, for your word. I thank you that it is truth. And even though sometimes the truth is uncomfortable, either for us or for our friends and relatives, people that we know, I ask, Father, that you would show us how to apply it, that you would show us how to use grace, use how we can function with thanksgiving and still hold to your truth. So I thank you, Father, that you've given us these words this morning. You want us to learn from them. You want us to be able to teach them to one another, uh, to our children, to people that we come in contact with, whoever will listen, that need to understand the truth of your word. And so we rest in you, Father, for the results, and just ask that you would help us to understand and apply what we looked at this morning, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, back in July 1969, just before we were married, actually, uh, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin walked on the surface of the moon. I don't think it was a Hollywood soundstage. I think it actually was the surface of the moon. But they captured the headlines and people's imaginations as we all visualized what it must have been like to be in their shoes. The third member of that mission passed away this last month at age 90. Michael Collins was the one who piloted the command module around the moon for about 28 hours while the other two walked on the moon. And then completed the tricky, he had to complete that tricky maneuver of redocking the lunar lander with the command module in order to be able to return home safely. So he made us... 750,000-mile trip, never got to walk on the moon. But he had to get him back in their vehicle and get him safely back to the Earth. And he was obviously successful, but he did a key part of the mission, but he became the forgotten astronaut. He never got to walk on the moon. 
It's kind of interesting to me that the, as a lead-in, because the average Christian who affirms the doctrine of the Trinity often only lives as if God were a duality. God the Father and God the Son. The Holy Spirit really is the person of God who remains in the background, intentionally drawing very little attention to himself, even though he is essential for God's plan to move forward. The Holy Spirit is actually a person of God who remains in the background. And Paul has told us that we are sealed by God's Holy Spirit. We're bound over to him, and he is the guarantee of our eternity with God. The proof that God is serious when he makes us join heirs with his son, Jesus. He's the glue whose presence actually holds the church together. But however, we tend to live with an under or less than adequate understanding of the Holy Spirit. It seems like we tend to either overemphasize his activities or we fail to live as if the Holy Spirit is fully God and fully personal. So Paul gives us a reminder in verse 30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now to grieve is to cause pain. And because the Holy Spirit can experience pain and sorrow and personal distress, as well as joy, it tells us that he's a person. He's not some divine emanation. He's not some impersonal force. He is actually a person. And understand now that the Holy Spirit is a person who experiences joy and grief through the lives of those that he indwells. That's what makes great spiritual growth possible. First of all, because it shows how much we're loved. His great love for us is what makes his grief possible. And we all know that from personal experience. The ones who we love the most and we lose are the ones that we tend to grieve the most over. But knowing that the Holy Spirit is a person also motivates us to holiness, to living a life that pleases God. Because when we conform to the world around us, the pattern that exists, and the way the world speaks and acts, we cause God pain. And if it's habitual... We're going to be warned in chapter 5 of just how serious that might be. But we saw last week as Paul provided a list of attitudes and actions that we're supposed to put off and then to put on like garments. He's emphasizing that how we function as Christians within the body of Christ, the church. Remember that Paul commands us back in verses 22 through 24 to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be re- and be renewed, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self over here, <clears throat> created in the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And then remember, he gave several reasons why this is necessary. But overall, not putting off the deceitful practices of your life that you picked up from before you became a Christian or that you exist with in this world, before Jesus brought you into His family, is how we grieve the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament. Israel's failure to obey God is identified as grieving the Holy Spirit. I'll give you one example here in Isaiah 63. We don't want to be fighting against God. Not a good spot to be in. So last week we considered the, the standards that God sets forth that for individuals who are going to follow Christ, for his people. Remember he said to uh, put off lying to one another, put on speaking the truth. Then he gave us a reason why. Because we're members one of another. We need to be honest with one another. He also said to put off sinful anger and put on keeping short accounts with others. Why? Because we don't let give the devil the opportunity to destroy us by causing resentment and bitterness. 
And he says, put off stealing, but put on honest work. Why? Because God wants to make us all into philanthropists. He wants us to be able to give to other members of Christ's body. He also said to put off speaking corrupting words and put on words that edify, that build up. Why? Because he says to do otherwise is what grieves the Holy Spirit of God who is preserving you for eternity. Now, the question that might come into your mind, did mine anyway, was why does he wait until this far down the list before he mentions about grieving the Holy Spirit? Why not right at the very beginning? I think one of the reasons is because he's, just because he's just about finished with the put-offs and the put-ons here, He's talking about the fact that the Holy Spirit is key to maintaining the unity of the church. I mean, Jesus destroyed, Paul tells us, the wall of hostility that existed between Jews and Gentiles or any other racial or ethnic groups. But the Holy Spirit takes the truth of what Jesus did and how he seek, and he applies it to the situation at Ephesus and the situation here too. And one of the main cultural ways, and we know this very well, of maintaining people in groups or identities that hate each other is to use hurtful words. Tearing one another down is not how you show it the wall of hostility has come down. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So he's dealing here with, with the issue of a, of a heart predisposition uh, or attitude. And he talks in particular about how that attitude manifests itself using some very descriptive words like bitterness. That's, re, that's, like a resent, that's a resentful spirit. He speaks of wrath, sinful emotional rage. We looked at also last week. Anger is kind of a settled sullen hostility and clamor. What do you throw that one in there for? Well, clamor is somebody yelling at somebody else because they're angry or they're bitter about something. That's clamorous. Or slander, when you speak evil of somebody else, especially when they're not around. And malice, which is just a general malice, ill will towards everybody. And Paul is saying that this whole complex attitude, this predisposition of a heart, it has to go. That kind of bitterness is not to display itself in the family of Christ, in the body of Christ. He says we're different from the world from the inside out. That's how we're being changed. But if we look underneath that, the fundamental issue really is people have a resentment about the providence of God, about how God's treating them. Hebrews twelve fifteen puts it this way. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Well, when life becomes difficult, maybe because of ill health or loss of a loved one or financial woes or some other form of suffering, it's easy to miss the fact that God has a purpose in all that. We can begin to harbor thoughts like, God has not been good to me, despite the song we sang this morning. I've been shortchanged. God is not treating me fairly. I deserve better than this. Hence, most of the commercials you hear on radio and TV. And it builds, and as it builds, it creates an attitude, a heart disposition of bitterness that begins to express itself in actions and words that end up poisoning other brothers and sisters. And, of course, Jesus talked about this in one of his most famous parables, the one of the prodigal son. 
Jesus ends that story by talking about the elder brother. And of course, usually when you tell a story, it's the last thing that you leave with that you want people to really remember. Remember, the prodigal had come home. Dad has slaughtered a calf. He started had a feast. There's a big party going underway. And the elder brother's response to his father is, you never did this for me. He harbors a, a grudging, bitter attitude toward his father and, of course, towards his brother. And what's even worse, it wasn't even true. Remember what the father said. He said, my son, everything I have is yours. The son's accusation was simply untrue. But he was bitter about it, and that colored everything. He felt that he wasn't being treated as he deserved, even though that everything that the father had was his. He could have had a party anytime he wanted. He missed the grace of God, and he became bitter. So Paul says not only put off being bitter, but put on being kind and forgiving to one another in light of what God has given to you as far as forgiveness is concerned. So in stark contrast to a life of bitterness where we doubt God's goodness, where we resent maybe uh, his providence in our lives, we're going to live a life of kindness and forgiveness as the Holy Spirit empowers us. And we're going to do this because we know this is exactly what God has done for us. It's only when you realize you're the recipient of a kindness that you didn't earn, when you realize that you're the recipient of a forgiveness that you don't deserve, that you're suddenly freed from the power of your bitterness to realize that God has been better to you than you dared dream. In his love and his kindness and his gentleness toward you, he has set you free to be kind to those who don't deserve kindness, to individuals who have deeply offended you and don't deserve forgiveness, and he's freed you. He's freed you from those concerns. How? By just simply telling you to knock it off and just forgive him? No. He says by showing you his love and his kind and, for, and his forgiveness first. And showing us in such a way that it's, it actually intends to and actually does change our lives. And Paul's getting at that is a person worth imitating. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children... And walk in love, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant and offering sacrifice to God. What do these verses tell us? Well, first of all, he tells us before we were born, God has loved you with a special, personal, saving love from all eternity. We saw that earlier in the book of Ephesians. He, God, shows us in him, Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Before you're even born. Also, his son gave his life for you to take the place of the judgment that you deserve. That's in those verses as well. And also that God was satisfied by the substitute and the sacrifice of his son. The debt was paid. It was a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. He was pleased. But then after you were born, he lists some other things. That God brought you to faith, and he put you in a saving relationship with Christ. He calls us beloved children. He adopted you into his family as a child of his own. And he forgave all your sins, and now there's no condemnation. So we can walk in love. That'd be a great place to end, wouldn't it? In some ways, I kind of wish the text had ended there. But then we get to verses 2 and 3. Or 3 and 4. So after reminding us who our source is for holy living, the apostle makes a real jarring contrast in verse 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity and covetousness 
must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. So everything from verse 3 now, continuing on to verse 14, is a stark contrast to verse 2. Because the emphasis shifts from how we think, how we speak, how we act inside the church, now to how we must think, speak, and act in relation to the world around us. And he's describing here the absolute incompatibility of sexual immorality with the Christian faith. The two can't mix. There's no mincing of words in this passage. And here we have the truth as it is in Jesus, the reality of things as they are from God's perspective. He says you cannot truly love one another and walk in God's love if you practice sexual immorality. And this statement was made in a day when sexual immorality was just as tolerated and accepted as it is today. In this very city of Ephesus, there were temples to pagan gods and goddesses, the worship of whom was made possible by young priests and priestesses who gave their bodies to whoever could pay the price as an act of worship. And so the city, the citizens, accepted all forms of sexual practices as acts of worship and regarded it as normal and proper, even as a mark of dedication. It was a religious rite. So Paul is writing to these newly minted Christians who grew up in a culture that was saturated with sexual perversions. God empowers you, God empowered them, to live by a different family standard. We need to keep keep in mind that, that God is not opposed to sex. He designed it, he created it, he celebrates it, but only in a lifelong commitment of a man and woman in marriage. The Bible is not negative about sex, just about its misuse. Now, I'm going to do my best to cover this text accurately, realizing that there are young years present, I think, which puts a bit more burden on you parents, if there's things you have to explain later on, if questions come up. I'm going to admit a lot of details and examples, uh, because you can draw your own conclusions to fit your background and your understanding. But Paul is very direct in this passage, And I want to be direct as well, but I want the gospel to be what causes the offense, not some lame illustration that I use. So here we go. The main thought of our text is that sexual immorality in any of its forms is wholly incompatible with a Christian who is imitating his father by walking in his love. And the text gives a whole lot of reasons why this is true. And the first one is in verse 3 where he flat out says that all sexual acts outside of heterosexual marriage defile us as human beings. Not just as Christians, but as human beings. So what's he trying to eliminate from our lives? He says, immorality, impurity, or covetousness must not even be named among you. Put those off. He says, put off filthiness, foolish talk, and crude joking. Now the first three of those tend to idolize the sexual relationship. And the other three tend to trivialize the sexual relationship. So we'll take a look at these words and just consider what they might mean. And whether any of them are part of our lives, that's what we have to do. We have to look at our own lives and see, does any of this apply to me or to people that I know that I, have an, that I have, could have an influence over? So let's begin with those terms that describe the idolizing of sexual relations, of making them the primary consideration of life, which, of course, our society would never dream of doing. First one he mentions is sexual immorality. This is a broad term in general for sexual sin, but in the New Testament, it tends to focus on 
fornication, that is, the fulfillment of sexual desires before marriage. And the word here is the word porneia, which we transliterate into pornography. What he's getting at here, too, is that premarital sexual relations are wrong. It is contrary to the revealed will of God. And that includes cohabiting without marriage, or friends with benefits, as some people have described it. And there are some examples where he uses this word in the same way. Rather than a general way, he actually applies it specifically to fornication. And 1 Corinthians 7, 2 is one of those places where he says, because of the temptation to immorality, to porneia, each man should have his own wife and each her own husband. So he's saying that before you're married, you're tempted to porneia. So the sin in view is not adultery, but premarital sexual relations. And in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says that sexual immorality must be shunned. He says, flee immorality, realizing that something we're powerless over pretty much. So this is the natural meaning, I think, given to the word here in chapter 5, verse 3. Fornication must be, he says, eliminated from your life if you're a Christian. Then he goes on to say, impurity also is something that you're going to put off. This is a word that Paul uses several times in his writings to discuss sexual sin. I think it's kind of probably added to this word for fornication because of the situation in Ephesus, the kind of degradation that was common there. Back in Romans chapter 1, verse 24, Paul writes something in parallel. The kind of things that come into a culture when it exchanges God for the creature. He says that people start exchanging the natural for the unnatural. In verse 24, he says, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, the dishonoring of their own bodies among themselves, which he goes on to identify as homosexuality and lesbianism. He gave them up to dishonorable passion in verses 26 and 27. Their men, women exchanged natural relations for unnatural, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men. It didn't use the word homosexuality. It didn't use the word lesbianism, but that's exactly what he's talking about. So to, for people that go through and cherry-pick words, uh, this concept kind of throws some of that out. The word's not used, but the concept is clear. So even though our own culture is in a lot of ways returning to the debauchery and license of first-century paganism, those who've been called by Jesus Christ into his kingdom and glory are going to stand firm against both fornication and homosexuality. If that wasn't enough, he talks about coveting. He says, you have to eliminate this too. You have to put this off too from the Christian life. Now we think of coveting, we think of greed. We think of something where you want to possess uh, money or somebody else's property. But it really is actually broader than that. It means any kind of a strong craving. You know, an ability not to be content or to be satisfied with the necessities of life. It could be a craving for money, or it may be a craving for sex, as it seems to be here. And we see it today and just in the, in the invasive obsession with pornography. <laughs> I can remember back in the old days, when you would go into a drugstore or a grocery store, you wanted in the magazine section, anything that was like a, a Playboy magazine was there in Iraq, but it had a cover over it. Now, one click and you're in trouble, right, on the internet. 
even if you don't intend to. Coveting is stronger than envy or jealousy. Coveting, it says that what you have really ought to be mine. You don't deserve it. And the same word was used back in Ephesians 4.19 in this same sense. Paul refers to unbelievers in that culture as people who have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So covetousness is what drives the pursuit of unclean behavior. So he says, if you're a Christian, these things have got to go. They must go. Fornication, homosexuality, and the dominating power of cravings in your life that are not cravings for God. Any substitute. So let me come to those terms where we use the terms for sexual relations, treating them as trivial, as only worthy of crude language and joking. I'm going to link all these together, I think. No filthiness, no foolish talk, no crude joking. So here I think he's dealing with the human tendency to treat those things that God has established to honor himself, to treat them with contempt. And remind us humans that he only intends good things for us. He intends good things for us, but when we treat them with contempt, we treat them with derision, we're actually exalting our ideas over his. Not only that, then we trash his ideas, which we see in our culture all the time. Our ideas are better, and God's ideas are really bad. And of course, anybody who follows him falls in the same category. So sexual immorality is incompatible with Christian faith because even the talk that leads to sexual immorality, he says, is inconsistent and it's pointless. It's out of place. In other words, the apostle is essentially asking the question, what do Christians gain by this kind of an exposure? What can you expect to gain by watching porn or reading bodice-ripping novels or watching movies with gratuitous sex or discussing sexual perversions or indulging in sexual humor. What can you get out of that? The answer really is, he says, nothing. It's pointless. He says, it's wasted. It's not fitting. You have nothing of value from those kinds of actions and talk. He says, they're a complete waste of time, besides the enslaving aspect of it. We're treating something that God says is good as something that's trivial. So he says, we're to take off the old self of fornication, homosexuality, covetousness, Filthiness, foolish talk, and crude joking. And what are we to put on? Thanksgiving. Not the holiday. This is the real stuff here. And it comes at the end of verse 4. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. Who saw that coming? I mean, would you have chosen gratitude or thankfulness as the opposite of all those sexual and verbal sins? Why does Paul do that? Well, if you think about it, if fornication and impurity are driven by covetousness, and covetousness is a deep, discontented craving that dominates your life and even leads you to to go against the will of God, then it's clear that the opposite experience will be thanksgiving. If you're overflowing with thanksgiving to God, then you're not dominated. You're not driven by disappointment at what you've been denied. I think you've been denied. Which is why verse 20 later on goes so far as to say, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Giving thanks is a very key concept here, all the way through the New Testament. 
And you can see that thanksgiving really is the alternative to a life driven by cravings for things you don't have. Sex, money, power, whatever it might be. Thanksgiving says, in God, I have all that is good for me already. I'm not going to be driven to dishonor the value of his name just to get a few sexual sensations or a few new toys. And you can easily see how thanksgiving is the opposite of treating God's gifts as filthy or trivial. I mean, if you're truly grateful for something, it displaces everything that you're trying to idolize. When your heart is overflowing with gratitude to God, do you use coarse language or make light of things? No, because gratitude is what you experience when you feel that you've been given eyes to see that all of life is a gift of a sovereign God and a gracious God, and it's not there for trifling, and it's not there for defiling. It's there to honor. So we must strip off the old garment of fornication and everything else and put on the garment of gratitude. And he describes one other way to describe this change. In verse 5, about halfway through, he says that a covetous person is also an idolater. In other words, the root problem about being driven by the domination of earthly desires is that it enthrones self and dethrones God. So when Paul puts gratitude in the place of covetousness, he's simply putting God in the place of man. And in particular, he's putting God in the place of self. Gratitude is the opposite of covetousness because it enthrones God. It exalts him. Gratitude says that God is what satisfies me in everything. Covetousness says that God is not adequate. He never satisfies, at least not enough. Now we come to the question, how is Paul going to motivate us to eliminate fornication and all these other things from our lives? He told us already that these things are not fitting. Verse 3, sexual immorality and so on should not, must not be named among you as is proper. And he says, filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking, he says, are out of place. He's pleading with the believers here to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, which he said back in verse 23 of chapter 4. He doesn't want mere obedience simply by just imposing a law. He doesn't just reinstate one of the Ten Commandments, number 10. Because rules without relationships still lead to rebellion. He wants new creatures. He wants people who have new ways of seeing the world, new values, new tastes, new desires, a whole new vision of the world. And things like fornication, uncleanness, and covetousness, and a hundred other sins will just seem out of the question because they just don't fit our new character in Christ. Remember, he's working from a new character that God has given us in its outworkings. He's not trying to tell us to do things that we can't do. He's trying to let us know that we have this power within, God's at work within us, to bring it to this point, and then to give us the power to be able to conquer these things. So a person who's born again and stands justified before God with all the infinite riches available to that person, covetousness with all the impurities is just unfitting and out of the question. They just don't go together, which is how Paul wants us to obey God. Which I, This is really the gospel. It works from the heart. So Paul's goal is to motivate Christians to obey with this kind of inner, free, joyful gospel obedience why did you threaten them? Why did you now threaten that if they don't, they'll miss heaven and go to hell? 
which is exactly what he says in verses 5 and 6. You may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So all sexual misconduct, he says, is incompatible with Christianity because a Christian has no longer any excuse to indulge in it. You're not ignorant anymore. You're not caught up in the web of deceit that's spun widely across our age. We're not self-deceived or brainwashed by the subtle propaganda, not so subtle in some cases, that's abroad. It's unthinkable, he says, that we should go deliberately from light back into darkness. As a matter of fact, if he says if you think you're going from light into darkness, back to your original practices, he says you never saw the light at all. And it's particularly sexual immorality that brings the wrath of God against a society that permits or encourages it. And that's why he says, for it's because of these things that the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Now that term, wrath of God, is one that we think is often misunderstood today. Because almost invariably, when you think of the wrath of God, you think of lightning bolts from heaven, or sudden catastrophes, or that great judgment day in the future. It's not that there won't be a day of judgment, but the scripture makes it clear that's not what's really in view here. The Apostle Paul declares in, that, in his letter to the Romans that the wrath of God is going on right now. In chapter 1 in Romans, he said, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's verse 18 in chapter 1. So the wrath of God, he says, is something that's happening right now. Well, what is it? As he goes on to make clear in that first chapter, it's simply God saying, all right, if you want to have it this way, go ahead. Old Testament calls that hardening of the heart. God is allowing people to make their own decisions and letting society go the direction that they think they should go. It's God giving men up to their own passions refusing to exercise his gracious restraint on man's evil. In other words, it's the inevitable effect of moral wrong on the individuals who indulge in it, not only the effect upon them, but upon their children, their children's children, and their friends and other people that they come in contact with, because we're all bundled together as people. Another way to look at this is to say that the wrath of God really is the, the animalizing of humanity. It's a new word. The brutalizing of our essential manliness or womanliness and the corruption of human personality that results. Our culture is trying to turn us into animals. And a lot of people go right along with that. And the manifestations of it can be things like boredom, restlessness. See if these sound familiar after this last year. A sense of despair or uselessness a sense of emptiness from within, accompanied by neurotic fears or unexplainable anxieties, sudden urgings to violence or injury to others or yourself, among many others. Think back to this last year. As these things increase today, COVID restrictions get the blame rather than sin. After all, since mankind is essentially good, 
what harms mankind from doing what he really wants to do is the restrictions of society and the church, of course, puts on him. So these external factors really are what's causing people to experience all these horrible symptoms. Not the fact that they are sin in their hearts. So it's external things that cause mankind distress, not the fact that he hates God. Because it was never God's intention that we live out our days in a tempest of anxiety and neurotic reactions. These are a result of God's withdrawing his restraint of grace, and he gives men up to their passions. So he continues that on by telling us, therefore do not become partners with them. For at one time he says, you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Walk as who you are. Live out who you are. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. So anyone born again by faith in Jesus Christ has been translated out of the kingdom of darkness, out of the power of Satan, and brought into the kingdom of light, into the power of God. We've been removed from that helpless bondage to deceiving and the alluring propaganda of the satanic lie that's kept us helpless and brought into the very presence of God. This is the gospel. Now Paul says it's unthinkable that a Christian who's been delivered from darkness and brought into light should turn his back on the light and go back into darkness. So Christians, as we end up in the situation where we have to confront our society, we need to remember that we know truths about the human existence that the people around us don't know. Because we have God's understanding of who we are. That's why we're expected to act differently, to think differently, and to react differently. We have God's word on what pleases him, and he empowers us to want to please him, which is our main power against the temptations of the world we live in. Which brings us to the final reason why sexual immorality is incompatible with Christian faith. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. And therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Well, his final argument here is that sexual immorality is incompatible with the Christian faith because the Christian is called to expose the true character of sexual evil. You can't expose something and indulge in it at the same time. It's totally inconsistent. Because eventually your sin's going to find out. Ask Robbie Zacharias and a host of others. You can't expose something and indulge in it at the same time. So the job of the Christian then is to Make sure that we are putting off and putting on the things that God tells us to. And then to speak up in these areas. I mean, if we need any justification at, a time for, for, at all for a message like this, here it is. The apostle says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. He says, you are light. So he says, bring them to the light. Make them visible. It doesn't mean to denounce them. Nobody likes to, have to be denounced for things. They certainly don't like to have people go around denouncing them as individuals. What the church ought to do 
It's to show the truth about these things that, to, through how we live and how we act and how, how, the words that we speak, to tear away the lies and to reveal the basic facts and to let men see that what God intended for sex is wholesome, beautiful, wonderful, and only properly protected by the bonds of heterosexual marriage. Romans 12, 2 reminds us, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. So, our task, he says here, is to revolt against the masquerade of truth that's so current today. Tear away the veil from the illusions and the lies that grip men today and make them hope they're going to find something healthy and wonderful in the exploitation of sexual relations. Because they're not going to find it at all. They're going to find the exact opposite. Part of our job is to tear away those veils. Now, that doesn't mean that you're, every person you're going to run into, you're going to have to go to the turn and burn approach. It does mean that people that you know, that you know are engaged in practices that are taunt contrary to Scripture, you have an obligation to ask God for the opportunity to share truth. And as you get to know people better, you're going to maybe find out other things that you find that are kind of troubling in this whole area. He says, you need to, you're the light bearer. You are the one who brings light to the situation. You are the one that God wants to use to overcome darkness. What form that's going to take? That's up to you guys. The proof is left to the student. But God's going to give you the chance. What he does not want it to do is to turn back and to be afraid or to figure that God's understanding from the Bible of creation and the relationship between men and women is... Passe, don't fall for the world's propaganda on the fact that God has nothing to say about the issue. Who invented all this? Who's in charge of all this? But he tells us, first of all, to wake yourself up first. And there's a parallel to this kind of in, in Philippians chapter 2. In verse 14, he says, Do all things without grumbling or complaining, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish. <laughs> Well, I'm going to do that. I have to go to a monastery. I'm going to have to go to a Christian conference ground someplace. That's the only safe place to be able to do something like that. So you've got to finish the verse, which says, Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Or as the Amplified Version puts it, in the midst of a generation of crooks and perverts, you shine. You're the light. You're the only light some of these people are actually going to run into. They think everything around them that is dark is really light. And you're the one that knows they're in darkness. This is a real cause. This is a real challenge. This is not a case where we shrink back and hide, assuming that nobody's going to understand the message that we have or the light that we bear. This is a case of not living by lies again. This is a case of confronting the lies of the world with the truth in what you say and how you live. We are the light bearers. Let's close in prayer. Father, you've given us a big responsibility, but I thank you that uh, you're up for it. And Father, may we be the ones that are up for it as well. Enable us, Father, to find creative ways to be able to communicate your truth to those who need to hear it. And we know that not everybody's going to be ready to hear it at a particular time. We know that sometimes the fruit is green and we can, just, we can damage it by trying to, to uh, force it to ripen immediately. So, Father, give us sensitivity to those people who are maybe struggling in some of these areas and show us how to, to bring truth, bring light 
into their lives that are dark. Not just in the area of sexual immorality, but in all manners of life as well. I thank you, Father, for doing this because we know it's your will. We just read it, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.